This episode of the Morning Skate is brought to you by Laga Sports. Laga Sports specializes in making 100% custom, fully sublimated uniforms and apparel for a variety of sports, but they're known for the premium quality and creativity of hockey jerseys. They have a one-price, any-design policy. It doesn't matter if you're looking for a simple NHL style or if you're wanting to create jerseys that look like rebel fighters from Star Wars. The price will always be the same, and the design of possibilities are endless. Check them out at lagasports.com. That is lagasports.com. L-A-G-A-S-P-O-R-T-S dot com. Own your look, own the game. You'll lose 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Morning Skate. You have Ked here, Ked, with Dale. Dale, say what up. What's up? Where can we find you? In the analytics of this podcast. Attaboy. And this is a big podcast for us because we have a legend. Uh, he spent a little bit of time up by where we are, Saratoga. He was in Glens Falls. Riley Cote, one of the toughest guys to ever play in the league. How's it going, man? How's everything good. with you? Everything's good, yeah. How are you guys? We're living the dream, man. We just, before we get into it, just want to say thank you for taking time and just hopping on. Uh, there's not a lot going on in the sports world right now, so we're trying to get our listeners and anybody who's into hockey, you know, hearing stories that they might not have heard of before or just stuff like that. So thank you for taking time. I know our listeners are going to appreciate it as much as we do. Yeah, no problem at all. I hear there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of dry dry spells around this right? whole coronavirus. It's crazy. Crazy world, man. Absolutely bonkers. It's Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Right? Never, never. But, uh, okay, so for, former NHL player, when did you start playing? Uh, I know that you're from Manitoba, which is up in Winnipeg. I would like for you to kind of break down what it's like up there because I don't think we've experienced anything like that before. Uh, yeah, so how would you get into hockey? Well, uh, I grew up in a, in a family that had season tickets to the Winnipeg Jets, and I was thrown on skates at three years old. Started playing organized hockey at the age of five, and uh, you know the access to ice time in Canada, as you can imagine, is a lot easier than anywhere you know down south. So, between indoor rinks and outdoor rinks and street hockey and pond hockey, uh, there wasn't a shortage of of hockey. So, I mean, I just uh, as early as I can remember, I I just loved hockey. So um, naturally, I just made the progression through, you know, you know mites at five years old through youth hockey and. Eventually, you know, played midgets and landed up playing in the Western Hockey League and worked my way up that way. But, uh, you know, it's it's hockey's just in the blood of Canadians. And, um, you know, it's nothing more than that, really. I think every 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 kid plays hockey um, at, at some level, you know, for for some length of time. I just landed up being fortunate enough to extend my career and, and land up playing pro. So you, you went to a ton of Winnipeg Jets uh, games when you were a kid. Who was your favorite player? Well, I had a few. Um, Timu Solani, uh, Ty Domi, Mike Eagles, and I ended up w- uh, winning a Scott Arneal hockey jersey, oh, number no, 11. So number 11, uh, my whole uh, youth hockey career. Because of Scott Arneal? Yeah, yeah. I just ended up winning his jersey at one of the Winnipeg Jets games. So naturally, I was just uh, gravitated towards that number and didn't really know why. Uh, but obviously, there was better <laughs> players. But uh, yeah, so... Bunch of different guys, yeah. We had some interesting guys come through Winnipeg, and you know, back then before the salary cap era, I was once they, you know, got out of their entry level contract and just were too good for Winnipeg Jets. They landed up signing somewhere else or getting traded, but uh, yeah, we had some good guys come through. That's why Scott O'Neill, former uh, New York Rangers assistant coach. That's how I know that one. Uh, oh, yeah. That's some pretty good hockey to be watching as a kid. Tamo Solani, I mean, he, he was a pretty good hockey player. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. He, I don't even know what how many goals he had, 76 goals or something that that one year, and he broke yeah. uh, all those records. But, 
Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was an uh, interesting time, and Winnipeg just loves hockey. I mean, right now they have an NHL team, an American Hockey League team, and a Western Hockey League team. And I know when the Winnipeg Jets left, uh, you know, whatever year that was, you know, 15, 20, probably 20 years almost now, um, the, the city was rocked, you know. They were, they were devastated when the team left. So, I don't know, it's just in the blood, you know. Canadians, you got, you know, four distinct seasons. Winter is... Very real, very cold, and, uh, you know, just naturally fitting for hockey. I mean, absolutely. And and you kind of touched on your WHL career. You spent four years with the Prince Albert Raiders. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research because that's what we do before we get people on here so we don't look like idiots. Uh, it looks yeah. like rookie year you were on the team with Scotty Hartnell, Schultz, and Fedoric. I was, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's quite the crew to have on, on a team your rookie year of junior yeah, so uh, Scott Hartnell and Nick Schultz are both 16-year-old rookies with myself, and Todd Fedorik was three years older, and he landed up getting traded from Regina later in the season. But um, yeah, it was it was a it was an amazing year, honestly. I actually I landed up having my gallbladder taken out and missing a good chunk of the year. Um, but as far as you know, moving away from home and you know being around some you know NHL draft picks at the time and. Um, you know, just experiencing as close as you're going to get to to pro hockey at the junior level. It was it was, it was super it was a super cool experience. I learned a lot that first year, sure. So when you got on that team, like Scotty Hartnell, he he was pretty well renowned, wasn't he? Like he was a pretty good player, and it doesn't sound like you guys had bad players on your team. Was it? Did you kind of know that these kids had it in them to and yourself to make the NHL when you were in the WHL? Like when you're with these guys, you're like, oh shit, man, but like maybe we got a shot here. Well, yeah, I mean, a guy like Scott Hartnell, he's a first-round pick in the in the Western Hockey League draft, and you could tell right off the bat he was, you know, he was better, certainly better than I was. You know, he was uh, he was like a second-line guy as a sixteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old rookie, and he was playing power play and quarterbacking some power plays. So, you know, you you could see a guy like that was gonna was certainly gonna play in the NHL. You know, for myself, it was you know I didn't I, I guess I was naive still at that time and didn't really know uh you know the whole progression and i, I still always believed i was going to play in the nhl uh didn't know how i was going to do it but certainly that first year there was a lot of adversity it wasn't easy by any means uh, besides the gallbladder issue i was you know in and out of the lineup um you know fourth line guy never been that before so had a coach that was really hard on me kevin mcclelland uh old meathead from the edmonton Oilers days uh like it was just there was there was just a lot of learning for me that year and um you know it was it was a it was a wake up call it was humbling because i you know i was a, a big fish in a small pond and all of a sudden i was a small fish in a big pond so um to answer your question I, at that time i really didn't know you know if i was going to play in the nhl i always believed that was I, again even going back before that i was always you know certain i was going to play in the nhl but again i always envisioned it being a goal scorer and you know what i mean making a lot of money and doing this you know this doing it the you know the the nice easy way but uh you know it was a humbling experience that first year as a 16 year old i think i fought the most i did out of the four years in juniors which was i think maybe 12 times or something like that because i was kind of forced to I, you know i i kind of realized that i needed to earn my keeps i wasn't in and out of the lineup like i said and um and there was fighting. Obviously, there was a there, there was fighting in junior hockey, and and it was, there was still a, a role for that back then. So now was uh, that overall, like, it's awesome. Was that a part of your like skill set at that point, or did you have to just kind of learn on the fly? Like, were you fighting before you went and played junior? And if you weren't, like, not everybody can do that, man. Like, how how did you figure that out? No, I honestly had never. I think I'd been in two hockey fights before that, and they were like midget cage rages. You know, uh, it wasn't like a true, true on hockey fight. So it was something I just had to learn. You know, I, I was just kind of like looking around me and 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 seeing. You know, you know, identifying that there was actually role players because where I'd come from, you know, midget hockey in Winnipeg, there was no really you know true role players right yeah we did have like three and a half distinct lines but you know like once you get to that level all of a sudden there there is fighters in the lineup and there is you know role players for you know penalty killers and 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 whatnot so i just had to kind of observe what was going on and um and kind of find myself you know i remember you know one night in swift current when we're down i don't know how many goals and kevin mccullen comes into the dressing room after the second period and just rips everyone a new asshole and looks at me and he's like what the fuck are you doing out there you haven't done 
anything. So I was yeah. like, holy shit. I mean, I, I got to go out there and do something. So my first shift, I, you know, naturally I fought. But, you know, I started to, to learn about this role that year. Not that I, you know, wanted to do it or, you know, I still thought I was better than that. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, you know, I, I accepted that role that year. And then, you know, the next year it got, it got a little better. I was like a third line grinder, penalty killer, a little bit more of a role, but, uh, you know, less fighting. But, uh, you know, I think when I, re- when I really realized that I needed to be a fighter is when I didn't get drafted to the NHL. And I was looking at, around the league and guys that got drafted were, you know, guys with a lot of points and, and other guys, guys with a lot of penalty minutes. So played out, you know, those next two years and then eventually turned pro. And then when I turned pro is when I decided to really take on the role. But I'd never, you know, never been a fighter uh, before that. Um, it's not something that most people want to do, you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe once in a while, but to take it on as a role when, you, when you're – obligated to fight and you're expected to fight on a regular basis it's uh it's a it's a different animal for sure okay all right so that and and it seemed like you figured it out because your last year in junior you had 28 goals 23 assists you had 134 pimps you spent a lot of time in the box but it wasn't like you were only scoring like one or two goals a year like it seemed like you found your role and you're you're out there blocking shots like you said you you found a role and that's that's what you need right um i thought this was kind of cool so after your last year of junior, you got sent to the AHL for the end of the years for the St. John Maple Leafs. Is that correct? Or did I get that wrong? It was actually the following year. So wow. okay. the following year to Toronto Maple Leafs uh, training camp. Mm-hmm. And um, that was when I decided I was going to be a fighter. So uh, my first shift in in uh, the inner squad, inner squad scrimmage, I landed up hopping over the you know, over the boards and ran Travis Green and Darcy Tucker came after me and I, you know, I one punch. Bring that up. Yeah, that was yeah. on. If you guys that was check that out, it. that was on, <laughs> that was crazy. Like, <laughs> it was I, funny. I, I, you know, it was funny. Like, it was kind of my first time, like you know, like going out there as you know, as that, as that guy with that mindset, you know, and just happened to you know be the first shift, and it ended up being, you know, uh, posted all over, you know, you know, nationally in Canada. All my buddies were like, "Wow, oh, what's going on?" Blah blah blah. But you know, Pete the wheels off, um, Darcy Tucker. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know he's a he's a small guy. I mean, I wasn't actually overly proud of that, you know. But uh, you know, it was it was it was a win, and it was, you know, it it got me where I needed to be as far as getting some attention. I landed up signing a um, an American League deal with St. John's Maple Leafs, and that was the year you're talking about. And landed up spending most of that time, uh, most of that season in Memphis in the Central Hockey League. But uh, yeah, that was the that, you know that was the moment I. You know, really identified myself as that. I went that that whole summer, that whole off season. I just trained to be a fighter. I was just, you know, I mean, not even the right way. I was a meathead, like over overly lifting weights and becoming, you know, overly stiff and, and unfunctional as a hockey player. But you know, my mentally, I was programmed, you know, to to go out there and fight whoever. You know, didn't know how I was going to do it. Didn't really take any fighting lessons or anything like that. But I was, you know, I was competitive. I had the, you know, I, I had that will in me to to figure it out, and that's kind of what I did. No, and and you you might have said Darcy Tucker is smaller, but he was definitely known for playing with with an edge, and he was kind of like a Maple Leaf icon, I would think. So I mean, they went through those rough years. He had Matt Sundin, but Darcy Tucker was always a name that was there. So out of all the people to fight in camp, the Darcy Tucker, I mean, that's just that's unreal. It's poetic. Yeah, you know what's uh, you know what's funny about that is that um, so Ty Domi was on my team, Wade Bielak was on my team. And um, after the inner squad scrimmage, I was showering, and um, all all of a sudden I hear like a bunch of yelling, and, and 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 I wasn't sure what to make of it. And then as I came out of the shower, it was like Ty Domi and and Belak basically like pushing Darcy Tucker out of the locker room because he was apparently coming after me. No way. Fight. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I'm like, wow, this guy really takes this shit personally. I was like, but, uh, you know, I get it. It's, you know, it's it's pride and there's some ego yeah. attached to losing a fight, especially to to a no-name guy that, yeah. you know, he was forced to fight. I mean, I, I, I literally charged at, you know, Travis Green from above the top of the circles in the corner and he split, split his forehead open. I mean, it was a clean hit, but it was a charge. <laughs> so I don't know if that's clean, but it was it was a clean, legit clean hit. And then, you You're know, Darcy took literally 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't thinking about it. It's inner squad yeah. scrimmage. I wasn't like yeah. you know worried about putting my team down in you know in a you know penalty kill situation. So, but no, yeah, I, he uh, he that pretty personally. Hockey, 
I would always appreciate like other people on the ice, like during practice, like a lot of practice, a lot of people just kind of fuck around. But if you're in practice and like somebody's bringing it as if they were in a game, like that's the type of shit that you need. So the fact that like you jumped out there and you're like, you know what, fuck this, man, I'm going to, I'm going to lay this guy out and I'm going to beat the wheels off the Archie Tucker. Unreal. <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. So Unreal. it's interesting how it uh, all went down, but you know, it was, uh, it, it was the mindset I had going into it. I was in kill mode. You know what I mean? It was like, I was playing the hockey game as if there was no puck. It was just like target right. bodies, expect to fight, and that was the, the again the mindset I was going into it with. Now, did you and Darcy ever like squash that afterwards? No, I never had a chance to squash it with him. I mean, I had no beef with him. Yeah. And, and then there's, there's actually another secondary funny part to the story. It was like uh, the, the training camp was in Hamilton at the I think it's Cops Coliseum. I think I'm not sure if it's still the same name or not, but there was a, a hotel attached to the arena in Hamilton there and I was waiting for an elevator this is like the next day and all the guys were staying in the same hotel so I was late waiting for the elevator all of a sudden Darcy Tucker comes flying around and he's coming to use the elevator but he sees me standing at the elevator and it was like it's like he's seen a ghost he had this yeah. weird look on his face like awkward and then just like 180 and walked walked away I was like geez oh, wow. man I'm like so, so for me personally, that's weird, you know, this weird, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, image of Darcy Tucker. I mean, it's probably not truly who he is, but I think it's just, again, it was his ego and his pride that was just crushed that, you know, that yeah. two minutes, not even one, you know, literally two seconds, really. And he just yeah. took it personally, yeah. I guess. That's crazy. I would have thought they had been like, hey, man, like, sorry for losing my shit. Like, good hit rookie or like some bullshit like that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah it's to swallow you know i i guess uh yeah everyone's a little bit different in those situations right. and i think it's you know just caught him at a weird time and whatnot oh, absolutely. All um, good. so then you said that you went to the memphis river kings of the chl what was it like playing in that league what was like the craziest place that you played in that league like what were some of the teams where what was the travel like uh, travel is insane uh i mean you talk about a jungle i mean it was a jungle down there uh, between the meatheads and the travel and some of the barns you played in the the one that sticks out to me the most is Austin. Uh, it was Austin Ice Bats, and we landed up getting dressed in this like trailer outside of the actual rink and walking. You know, you can imagine it's like south south part of uh, Texas there, um, humid, hot, and right. and walking up from this trailer to the rink. Um, sand and everything on the you know what I mean you're literally dodging sand walking out there and then. Um, the rink itself, like the glass was so foggy from the humidity. It was just like, just, just garbage. You know what I mean? I'm like, God damn, I want to get this leak so bad. But you know, there's all these juice monkeys and these guys with, you know, thousands of penalty minutes that just wanted to fight. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it didn't have to look very far to find a fight. And the other interesting building, I'm drawing a blank, it was Odessa or something like that. It was just this other shithole. Um, but they didn't have, they didn't have a, a like a speaker system. Um, in the rink where the captain literally skated out with a boom box and put it on top of the bench, Stop it. cranked it up and, and played who let the dogs out. <laughs> <laughs> it was insane. I was like, Oh my God, this keeps getting worse. So like, get me out of this league, man. But we lined up winning a championship. Actually, we ended up winning the president's cup and I actually had a really, really good year. It was a lot, it was a lot of fun, but Certainly not somewhere you want to spend a whole lot of time because it would drive you nuts. What was it like celebrating winning that championship with those guys? <laughs> it was a lot of fun, honestly. I, I had one of my best years, uh, just the overall best years in hockey that year, besides 51. when I won the Cold Cup. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Good group of guys. I really respected the coach, Doug Shedden, uh, who's you know, a longtime NHL and a pretty, pretty solid coaching career as well. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot. You know, I, I learned a lot about myself and... Um, you know, and really just uh, just how bad I wanted to get out of that league. I mean, it was, you talk about the jungle and the minor, minor leagues, man. You know, guys just like drinking beers on the bus, you know, coach drinking on the bus, like the owner on the bus drinking and like, you know, just like just stupid shit. Like just, you know, just the stuff that, you know, you think of pro hockey. It's just like there's got to be more professionalism in, even in the yeah. minor, minor, you know what I mean? But, hey, that was a central hockey league and, you know, a beer, you know, a beer fridge in our – in our in our uh, locker room, which we were sponsored by like Coors Light, so it was like That's you it. know, just, like, yeah, just <laughs> things have changed a lot since then. I know that, but it was hey, I look back on it, it's, it's laughable. 
you're skating around with a helmet decal that just says like Coors Light on it. That'd <laughs> be unreal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you ended up going to the coast after that for the Dayton Bombers. Um, now the level of professionalism, I'm assuming, was a little bit better. It was a little bit better, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I went to Columbus Blue Jackets training camp that year and landed up getting an eye injury. I got stuck in the eye. Um, it was like the second day in, uh, in an inter-squad game again. I was like battling the corner. A guy stuck him up in the eye. I thought I was blind. You know, I literally thought my eye was out of my face. Um, so I skated, put my head down and skated the bench, and I came to the bench. All I can remember was like, I fucking lost my eye. I screamed something like this, and the trainer's like, calm down, calm down. Well, long story short, I landed up having two eye surgeries on it. It had a detached retina. I must salvage my eye, but I landed up missing like the rest of that training camp and missed the whole Syracuse Crunch training camp, which was the American League team at the time. So I stayed up in Columbus and rehabbed and you know, had the surgeries and then landed up getting sent down to, to Dayton um, and, and played, uh, well, I would say like most of the year in, in Dayton. I think I had uh, six or seven games with Syracuse that year. I can't remember. But uh, yeah, there was, there was certainly a, a, a level of professionalism that was there. A way better rank. Um, uh, shitty team. We had a shitty team, so it was you know, and, and a shitty coach. But um, you know, the the league itself, I thought, was a little more professional than the Central Hockey League, but uh, not by much. But uh, you know, uh, it was again a step in the right direction. Um, we had, again, we we finished. I don't know, like second last in the league or something like that. And and I, I didn't feel like I had uh, the respect from the coach like I did the previous year, where you know I was like literally the I think they only carried eleven forwards in the coast that year, so I was like the eleventh forward. Um, and you know he was a he was a goal scorer coach back in the day, so he you know he didn't really have a you know a, o- overly um, you know he didn't have a, he didn't have a spot in his heart for me, I guess you could say. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot that year, too. You know, you learn a lot about, you know, direction and wh- where you need to go and what you need to do. But uh, it was, it was, I think it was a step up overall from the, from the Central Hockey League as far as you know, the league itself went. Now, you didn't wear a visor when you were in the NHL, right? I don't remember you wearing a visor. Uh, no, no. Even uh, in the Merrick League, my first – so in the Central Hockey League, I did not. And then in the East Coast in the East Coast League, I did because that was the first year they actually put visors mandatory in the East Coast right. League. But I remember, like, even when I had my eye surgery there, they're like, "Oh yeah, you gotta wear a visor for the rest of your life now." I was like, "Fucking way, man!" I'm like, "I'm not wearing a visor." Like, you just had you just had two eye surgeries, man. And I was like, "No, I'm not," you know. But then I got the American Hockey League is still hadn't adopted that yet. So in Syracuse, so I landed up going to Dayton wearing a visor. Then I got call, recalled to Syracuse. And I took my visor off, so that, that that rule had not been implemented in the American League then. So then the following year when I played in, in, in the Phantoms, there was still no visor rule, so I didn't wear a visor. I didn't wear a visor. I think, I don't even think I, I'm trying to blank now, if I wore a visor my third year, my, my third year with the Phantoms, but um, but definitely not in the NHL, no. No, I was just like, it's, it's hard to play the role with a visor, you know what I mean? You're going to go around challenge guys and you're wearing a visor, it's like, psh- and they look at you like you got a third eye so you know that's crazy to me like your first shift back like you didn't there was never any point where you're not going to go to like high traffic areas or like you're a little bit like holding yourself back because like i can't imagine coming back from that and like me wanting to be around anybody like at least at first right like that had to have been pretty scary i would think yeah you know i think if it would have happened later in my career i probably would have been a little bit more irresponsible and conscious but i think i was just so just ingrained in that that meathead mindset and just so excited i guess to to do what i thought i needed to do and and you know and and to to earn my keeps that I, honestly it was just fearless you know i think towards again like i said towards the end of my career i think i would have been you know a little more cautious but uh no i don't even, i don't remember having any sort of thought about it once i got cleared to play it was just like let's go let's get after it you know i fought i mean i think i fought 35 times that year you know what i mean so it was that's, that's, you think twice about it. I like that. Fearless. Um, so we, we were talking about the coast. You signed with the Philadelphia Phantoms for two years. You won another championship. You won a Calder Cup in 0405. Some of the guys that you played with, uh, Umberger, Patrick Sharp, Seidenberg, Pickenin, Fedorik. You got to play with him again. Ben Eager, Josh Gratton. Uh, did you ever think you'd see Fedorik again after junior? No, <laughs> I did not. And then, uh, yeah, so I landed up playing with him uh, for the Phantoms. And I got a crazy story about that, too. So that lockout year, he wasn't playing anywhere. 
and he had a good relationship with the general manager, Paul Holmgren. And um, I think we were like six or seven games into the season or whatever. And then eventually he, he worked out a deal with Homer instead of not playing or go over, you know, going overseas. He landed up signing with the Phantoms. So his first game uh, with the Phantoms, we're sitting on the bench. He's on my right. And someone had rimmed the puck around the glass. And everyone, you know, everyone's watching the play kind of. And, and, and the puck was skimming around the glass. And everyone's like, whoa, moves back. And Friggy's like looking at it. The puck comes back. <laughs> And it hits him right in the eye, and it sounded like, it just sounded like I was squeezed this this water bottle, just like crack, and I was yeah. like, oh my god, Fridgy, I'm like, did that hit you in the face? And then his face went down, and, and long story short, on that he broke his orbital bone and his whole face there, and he landed up being out for the for half of the season. But it was the ugliest sound; it's still like etched in my memory. So That's it's it just terrible, terrible luck, man. But. So he- uh, he got in a fight with Colton Orr at the Garden, and I'm pretty sure Orr broke his orbital bone. I don't so think, that guy just I had think, a I don't think Orr, Orr actually broke his orbital bone in that fight. I think he just knocked him out cold. Uh, um, Bugard broke his face on the other side. And I want to say Eric Cairns might have put another plate in him. He's, if you look at his uh, – if you go on his Twitter page, he's got an x-ray of his face, and it looks like the Terminator. It's like literally, you know, um, plate, plate, plate. I think he's got like six, six or seven plates in his face. One was from the puck, from Bugard, and maybe Cairns and something else there. So, yeah, it's pretty wild. Shit, uh, tough, 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 tough as, yeah, tough as nails, man. He's a good dude. I actually just did a podcast not too long ago. Oh, man, try to get him on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he's, he, man, he's got some great stories, man. He's a character. That'd be sick, man. And yeah. then, like, you, you got to play with other guys. Dennis Eidenberg, who was a staple for Boston Bruins on the, on the uh, defense. He, he was incredible. He wore T-Blades, I think. Did he not? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, some ugly blades, yeah. Did he get a lot of shit for that? Yeah, we gave it to him all the time, yeah. <laughs> all right, thank God. Whenever I see that, I'm like, I wonder if NHLers fucking really lay into him. Good Pumped to know. Too, man, those things. Just ugly looking. I mean, he he wasn't the prettiest player, but he was effective. He, yeah. he was, he, yeah, you he know what? You talk about a guy that worked his ass off and like just like trained and knew what he had to do and you know kept the game simple, but yeah, in really good shape, strong body, you know, do, you know, just uh, found his way, man. <laughs> Really, really know, proud of to see him. Did you know Patrick Sharp was going to be a fucking stud? Well, you know what? It was, it was. I guess back then it was hard to say like how good he really was. I mean, he was he was good on our team, and I knew he was going to you know be in the NHL. I think the year before that he had you know had a thirty game stint with the Flyers, so he was already kind of on his way. It's hard to kind of evaluate someone's true upside. You know, just playing with him for one year, but yeah, you no, know, for him to go on and and uh, be the player he was was certainly impressive. You know, he, uh, yeah, he, he he's high high skill, speed. You know, and uh, I think he just kept, every every year he got better and just kept turning it up a notch. So, really good guy too. You know, Sharpie is a you know he's a professional and uh, just an overall good guy. Now, when you're with the Phantoms. You eventually get to the Flyers. At what point when you're with the Phantoms, you're like, fuck, man, here it is. Like, I could be playing in the National Hockey League. Was there? Do you remember a specific moment where you're like, okay, like, let's fucking do this thing? Well, I still always had this this mentality that I knew I was going to make it. I didn't know how. You know what I mean? So there was never a doubt in my mind. Actually, you brought up the Todd Fedora-Colt Nor fight. That fight right there when he got knocked out was my was my my entry point to the NHL. Oh, so no that, way. That next day, I got a uh, well, not a phone call. I was already at the rink. Paul Holmgren called called me in his office and said, "All right, here's your shot." So when that happened, right away I knew, like in my mind, I'm like, I'm getting called up tomorrow, just because, like you know, they were still carrying a heavyweight, and yeah. there was only eight games in the season. And the Flyers are horseshit that year, and you know they weren't making playoffs. So he gets knocked out, and again, yeah, get calls me in the office says, you, you know, just do your do your thing. So you know, two days later, I was in the lineup and. How pumped were you, man? Oh, yeah, man. I was uh, super pumped. You know, kind of going back to, like, the Darcy Tucker type of uh, first shift. My first shift uh, hopped over the boards, sprinted right across the ice, and just hammered Sean Hill. I just folded him in half, and I was looking around. I was like, <laughs> didn't have to bring the lineup that night to fight, but I was expecting somebody since I folded him in half I could. So, uh, no fight that that first night. Um, it took, I only fought once in that uh, the eight-game span. It was Everyone was kind of in playoff mode. No one wanted to fight a call-up. Uh, even like a, you know, the last second last game of the season was against Buffalo. I lined up with Andrew Peters. They were going to the they were going to the playoffs, and 
I was like, let's go, buddy. Come on, just give me one. Give me one. And he, like, acts like he's going to fight. He backs off like he's going to drop his gloves. So I'm just like, drop my, throw my gloves, like, literally 30 feet in the air. And he just, like, skates away. And I was like, holy shit, man. I was like, I'm picking up. I I can't believe I didn't get a penalty. I ended up picking up uh, my gloves and skating, you know, skating around and finishing the shift. But, (laughs) yeah, I only only squeezed one out against the Devils, against Cam Jansen. But, um, you know, again, everyone was in playoff mode. They didn't want to fight. No one wanted to fight me. Did you ever get to fight Peters? I did, yeah. Next year, the the next the next year, I fought him twice. Yeah, I beat him twice, actually. Yeah. Oh man, I'd be so pissed off at that. Like your your first eight games in the show, and you're up with somebody. He's like, okay, yeah, sure, and he acts like it, and then he does that shit. Oh my god, I would hold a vendetta forever. Yeah, I was kind of pissed. Like, and I get and I get it to some to some degree, but also it's like it's Andrew Peters. It wasn't like it was you know a, a guy that's gonna actually play in the playoffs, right? I mean. Right. So he was kind of throwing that card out there, but I was like, God damn, like you're, you're just like me, man. You, you, if, if this was you, you'd be doing the exact same thing. So right. uh, whatever, I mean, uh, it, it is what it is, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was challenging that, that it was, it was eight games, just the, just the timing of it. <laughs> now, I, before we kind of get into the whole fighting aspect of your game, were you, you were on the squad when they made the cup final, correct? Yeah, that was my last year. So, in the, were you a part of what do they call them, the Black Aces, or did you get some playoff games in? Like, how'd that go? Yeah, so I wasn't a Black Ace. I was on the roster all year long. Oh, uh, maybe I was, I was just. I, was, I don't know. I was just. Uh, I was just scratched all okay. playoffs, and I knew it. I mean, I took every warm up in playoffs. I mean, I took every warm up that whole season. Yeah. And only played. Okay. I don't know. Was that like an unreal ride with the boys, or what? Fuck, oh, man. that was I mean, insane. I mean, we made the playoffs that last game of the season. Rangers. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so it was incredible, you know. So I was just along for the ride and just trying to. I'm just a, just a good team guy, you know, playing kickball and being around the locker room. And oh, obviously, okay. the management and the coaching staff recognized that I wasn't hanging my lip and you know, pouting that I wasn't playing and I had a good attitude. So they just kept me around. But I was at one point on waivers that year, um, and you know, I think it was open up, you know, some salary cap space. Um, never let up getting sent down. I think I just kind of did it just to. To, to potentially leave some room, you know, if something needed to happen. But, uh, again, I was just all about my attitude. I had a good attitude. You know, I really didn't want to go to the minors, obviously. Um, you know, just a pride and ego thing. And just uh, was happy to stay there and not play. But, you know, that last year, it was mentally draining, you know. I, I Mentally, I wasn't in a good place. Uh, I realized that next year that I, I wasn't able to do that. You know, I wasn't going to be able to sit around for 82 games and, and not play, you know. Uh, Peter Labula had come in that year, and he was not really a fan of any fighters. You know, he won a Stanley Cup with Carolina previously. That you know, he claims that we won a Stanley Cup without a tough guy. So um, I realized I was going to get sent down to the minor leagues anyways that year. So I had one more year in my contract actually, and landed up turning it in and got out of the game and got into coaching. <laughs> so but, <laughs> we have so much to touch on right now. Was that the year? Were you guys down 0-3 to the Bruins and came back yeah. and won? Four straight that oh man that was incredible i remember being at the bar at the recovery room in troy new york watching game seven and uh, you guys were down three nothing in the game too weren't you nothing in the game yeah game four <laughs> people don't talk about that enough man down fucking three oh battle back to game uh, seven then down three oh again you come back yeah that's why i i t- totally thought we we're gonna win the stanley cup that year just based on like, how it went like between the rangers and the last game of the season that boston series and the whole i don't know if you remember the whole goalie cycle we had you know, Ray Emery, Brian Boucher, Michael Layton, we claimed him off waivers from Michael somewhere. Yep. Um, and then Bush got hurt, uh, you know, that first round. And then Lates became our you know, number one. And, and, you know, it was it was it was crazy. So I just thought it was one of those Cinderella stories. But unfortunately, it didn't work out in our favor. But, um, yeah, it was insane. Just, you talk about, like, momentum going into the playoffs. All you got to do is just make the playoffs and you have a chance. You know what I mean? If, it's there, there's any, if there's any example of a team that just you just need to get in, it was that team, right? Like, last game of the year, you get in and then, holy yeah. shit, you beat the big bad Bruins. And then you're moving on and it's like, uh-oh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was wild. Total momentum, yeah. And just, and just, again, just, like, guys believing, you know? It's contagious. Absolutely. And before we get into your coaching, just want to touch on the fighting just for two seconds. Uh, you fought Brashear, LaRock, Peros, Thorin. Uh, I guess you, you and Andre Waugh had a bit of a heated back and forth. <laughs> not, I mean, he's weird. It's not really. I mean, I fought him twice twice before that game, the game you're talking about, I'm sure, um, in Philly. And then I fought him that game. So that was th- fight number three against him. And in that specific 
game in that fight, um, he he got his he got his arm loose, his, you know, his left hand loose, and you know I, I didn't do as good as I, I wanted to, um, so I wanted to fight him again. It was MS night, and my sister has MS, and she was in, yeah, in the stands yeah. and everything, so uh, I had an opportunity to fight him again. And uh, I don't know if you I don't know if you remember the fight or if you if you had the fight to reference, but the exact same square off where I you know grab I'm I'm a, I'm a lefty I, with my right hand I grab his left hand. And the first time I, the first time I fought him, he had pulled out and his hand was free. Well, this time, it almost happened identically where I grabbed his right hand or his left hand with my right, and he started to pull out and I let go and his hand got caught and then I went in there and and, and hit him and hit him with two punches and then he went down. So the beef was after, um, mainly because the jumbotron operator kept showing the fight in slow mo, over yeah. and over again. And he was looking up and boiling and looking up and boiling and Tortorella was like choking him out and sitting him down. And, and, <laughs> and, and there was a TV timeout with like 15 minutes to go uh, in the third period. I wasn't getting another shift. I was literally oh. sitting there, you know, playing uh, scoreboard poker. And um, he, co- he, he comes off the bench and he comes and he's like giving me like the, you know, the death stare and the, I'm going to cut your throat off or whatever. And he comes over. <laughs> And uh, I was just sitting there, I'm like, what, what, do you, what do you want me to do, man? I'm not getting another shift. I'm not going to fight you. I can't yeah. fight you. So the beef was, there was no, there was really no personal beef. It was just, uh, it was just, he was just furious for losing he the fight. Have, they kept show, yeah, just showing, showing it over. So they ended up sending him home after that, after that game. So uh, Tampa Bay sent him home and that was it for the rest of his season. And the following season, he signed with uh, Calgary. And then, so when Calgary came in the following season, I was like, oh, man, this guy's coming after me for sure. Right, yeah. So I mentally prepared for it, but he was, like, super tame. And then I actually landed up asking him to fight, so we squared off. I almost hit him with the exact same punch, but he kind of just, like, lost balance. We fell over, and then we got two minutes each for roughing. We didn't even get a five-minute major. So in the penalty box, I'm like, we're going again? And he's like, nah. <laughs> I was like, what? So I'm like, I thought I, I expected a little more, a little more juice out of you, but he was older and he probably didn't really want to fight anyways. But uh, um, yeah, I think it was just, he was just, emo- he was just emotional because of, you know, the circumstances in that, in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, before one last thing for you into coaching, you, we talked about all the fights, all the heart, like you just working your bag off to get where you're at. It would be bad of us not to talk about you scored a goal against Carey Price. Uh, and I watched it. And I, no celebration. It was just kind of like, yep, all right. I would have been losing my shit, dude. And you're like, yeah, I just scored it on the best goal in the world. Like, whatever. Who really gives a shit? It was wild. Well, the the background story on that is we were down 5-1 in the third period. So that made the game 5-2. Still your first goal. Um. So, yeah. So I really didn't have a reason to celebrate. So what I did was line back up and try and fight Steve Beijing. I was like, line up, you want to fight? Let's go, buddy. And he's like, what the fuck's wrong with you, man? I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to earn my keeps here. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't get a chance to celebrate in my NHL goal, but I don't really give a shit. You know, I scored one, and that wasn't the reason I was there, you know. Still Did awesome, what you do, prove, my, prove myself, uh, learn a lot about myself, and, you know, here I am. Carry Price, too, man. I mean, that's Yeah, all right. I can say I scored the best goal in the world. Hell, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you retired when you were 28. You coached yeah. four years with the Adirondack Phantoms, and I think this is awesome. Uh, we have an East Coast team there now called the Adirondack Thunder, and I'm the in-game host. So, like, I'm on the Jumbotron, like, interview, like, the assistant coach after a period. So that would have been me, but right. wasn't. But what did you think about Glens Falls, New York? Do you have any stories for us? Because we're only, like, 20 minutes south. Well, I mean, we didn't have very good teams that year. Um, like, we were we were horseshit. Was honestly. Patty Maroon on the team? He was, yeah, yeah. And, Actually, and interesting story about Patty is, uh, you know, uh, we ended up sending him home. We ended up yeah. sending him home because, uh, well, they 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 assumed that he was dragging some young guys down. We were horseshit, so they're just looking any, they're just looking for any reason to shuffle the deck, and just you know make a statement. So you know, he was out partying, probably like the rest of the guys, and he just yeah. took the, you know, took, took the brunt of it, but. Um, you know, we call him Fat Pack back in the day. You know, he was, he, was a, he was a really good hockey player. I mean, he was really strong around the net, obviously, like really yeah, good hands. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, the knock on him was he, was he was lazy. So it's probably the best thing that ever happened to him is when they sent him home. It was a total wake-up call for him, you know. And, and he turned it around. And look at him, man. Like, he yeah, went to Stanley yeah. Cup. And I don't know how many NHL games he got now, 700 or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was just, you know, he was in a bad situation, a bad team. You know, and uh, he took uh, yeah he took the fall, but again I think it was some sometimes 
some guys just need to hit, hit rock bottom right to find themselves and, and have a wake-up call so uh, we had some really good players but just not many of them on the same team uh you know at the at one time you know yeah. we we struggled for wins man and goaltending was really suspect down there um you know but uh as far as the, the stories i mean I, that was the year i kind of like you know, part of my exit strategy of getting into coaching wasn't so much to to find a coaching job as a career. It was to just like get out of the grind of not just fighting but partying and just like I just needed to like you know give myself some self respect and self love. So I spent a lot of time just like you know staying in my apartment and reading and you know just 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 being. You know what I mean? No no, no none of this drama, none of this shit. And you know it was uh, for me it was the good you know good four years to just like find some peace and quiet and then you know besides going to the rink i would never went to the bar never you know and just didn't do anything but but just kind of hermit and and find myself a little bit so interesting it was an interesting time you know uh i lived in i lived in hudson falls too which was a, a little bit of a dump but um but again it was wasn't about that it was about you know what i needed to do in my own personal life to to kind of to kind of justify why i reti- decided to retire in the first place so uh you know, and then eventually the team moved to to, to uh, Lehigh Valley, which is a brand new rank. You know, high-end American League right. uh, building, which was you know, not that not that the Glens Falls building was bad by any means, but there was just no connection with the Adirondack and Glens yeah. Falls and the Flyers. You know, it was just like there was a disconnect, and yeah. everyone there knew that it was a temporary move. Um, so we had a bad we had bad teams. The fans weren't totally connected, so there was just like you know. There was just like a lack of energy, in my opinion, overall yeah. with the team. No, that was a, and, and like before you guys were there, we had the Adirondack Red Wings like back in the early '90s. So like McCarty was on the team, and like yeah. Osgood played some games. So like, and then there was kind of a little bit of a hiatus, and then that happened. And and I think you're right. I think there was like a disconnect between the teams and what was going on and stuff. Uh, how did you like coaching? Did you did you appreciate? Was it a completely different thing? Was it weird to kind of like putting yourself in the shoes of people have been doing this to you for forever yeah you know uh, i enjoyed it i mean i was assistant coach so you know i was kind of like the buffer zone for the players and i was fresh out of playing a lot of these guys i had played with i mean i coached guys that i played with you know and uh, and been around in training camps and stuff like that so for me it was more just like being you know like an ear for these guys you know i wasn't like going there trying to be a hard ass like that wasn't me you know that's not my personality it was just more being a listener you know and just like uh, just kind of coaching the way I've always expected a coach to coach me. And it was just kind of, you know, just like talk to me, shoot, shoot me straight, talk to me like a normal human being and like listen, you know. So I had a good relationship with a lot of those guys. It was, you know, I felt like I was a player just on the other side of the fence, you know. I'd literally sit with these guys in their stalls and just shoot the shit and, and listen, show them video and not, you know, not being like overly critical because I, you know, I can't imagine what coaches said about me when, uh, you know, right. when I was playing and behind closed doors, but just like, you know, what coaches are supposed to do is teach showing them clips and, you know, breaking, you know, breaking some system that da- stuff, stuff down with them. But, um, no, I, I enjoy, I enjoyed it for sure. You know, uh, I just realized after probably three or four of those years, there was really not a whole lot of personal growth in that position. Um, you know, because like, you know, when you're dealing with 23 dudes and, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. So um, I think that was probably the point where I was like, yeah, you know, even though I coached three more years after that, I, I realized that, you know, uh, you know, quietly in the background, I was working on some other business stuff and kind of like getting, you know, other parts of my life going and um, and eventually got comfortable enough to put myself out there where I, you know, land up getting tossed off the tossed off the wagon there. But um no, it was it was good. I, I enjoyed it, but you know, for me personally, just the way I am wired, I just I just needed more. I just need more like uh, adversity or needed more struggle or whatever. You know, whatever it landed up being, more challenge. So we'll end up moving on eventually. Yeah, and after you retired, you co-founded Athletes for Care. It's a group that advocates for athletes on various matters of health and safety, including the use of cannabis as medicine. I think I wrote a blog about. You wanting, yeah, I have it right here. Uh, this was in 2017. You'd say that you quietly used it as an ally of yours. There's no physical addition, made you feel better. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, when I retired in 2011, I started, well, I started another nonprofit called Hemp Heals Foundation, and it was uh, you know, really showing the different 
phases of cannabis, more on the, the industrial side of things. So, you know, food, fiber, uh, hemp derived CBD, stuff like that. And uh, as I started speaking publicly about it, going to different conferences, I started running to different athletes from different sports that had, had a lot of the same types of stories, whether it was just, you know, pain management, inflammation, or substance abuse, or concussions, and how they found cannabis in some way, shape, or form that helped, you know, help them increase their quality of life and, and kind of get off, you know, the, uh, the prescription drugs and get out of that whole cycle of, you know, destruction. Um, so um, once I started running the same, the same group of athletes, eventually we said, well, okay, well, I'm going to just come together and officially form a group that is actually trying to help athletes that are retiring or retired more and focusing on those guys because a lot of these guys really struggle with substance abuse and identity crisis and and you know a lot of these guys leave the game with some sort of injury so um you know focusing on alternative medicine and the low-hanging fruit was cannabis right it was uh it, it's, it's a tool it's a pain management tool anti-anxiety helps with sleep the u.s government always holds a patent on these cannabinoids as neuroprotectants so it was fitting that we you know we would be public you know publicly speaking about this as a as an alternative for these guys versus you know opioids which we have an opioid crisis in this country and you know sleeping pills and ssris and you know all these different things that you know guys use that are essentially prescribed or handed to them by you know their 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 medical staff so um cannabis being you know misunderstood and you know and and, and somewhat still stigmatized you know that was what we we're going up against and so Collectively, we came together and started talking about that, but it was it was all things wellness. You know, obviously, the cannabis is a tool. It's not the only tool. There's other plant medicines that can certainly assist with mental health, mental wellness and overall health. But then, you know, just simple things like meditation and yoga and, you know, breath work and nutrition and all these different, other, you know, different things that uh, I got into uh, when I retired as well. So it was like a full package deal. Um, with all kinds of different sports and different athletes, different uh, athletes in different sports that just had the same vision, had the same mindset, and just trying to you know make a positive impact, uh, you know, for the general, you know, for the general public, but also you know within the sports community, and then uh, also targeting you know current guys too, because uh, almost uh, almost too often that these guys are so proud or so in the moment of of their careers that they forget that they're eventually going to retire and they're not sure how they're going to retire. And, um, they're, you know, just like I was th thinking that I was invincible, um, preparing them for that and not saying that here's the end, but just kind of like preparing them for that with the right tools, right? Some pain management tools and, and, you know, tools to manage the daily grind of sport, but also, you know, tools to help find themselves once they, uh, once they transition out of the game, because, uh, sports is so egocentric, right? There's so much, so much focus on yourself in the sport and you identify yourself with that sport. Um, so when that's over, guys struggle with who they are. They have no purpose, you know, you're going to the rink every morning. Well, you're not going to the rink anymore. You know, the team don't give a shit about you. You no longer have, you know, your medical staff to bounce some, you know, to bounce some ideas off them if, you, if, you, if you're not feeling well and, and whatnot. So I think uh, it was more just uh, was focusing on pre you know preparing these guys for the end and, and giving them the tools to, to succeed. No, and, and that's awesome. Garrison actually texted me. He can't get on because his internet's messed up. But he wanted to say thank you to you for promoting a positive message about it. Uh, Garrison, I think he's pretty open about his past. He went through some stuff, and he, he does CBD, and he just eats good, and, I, and he swears by it. And uh, I actually am bummed out because he, he's been texting us nonstop the past, like, I don't know, however long since you said you were coming on. And he's oh, like, yeah. dude, wait to talk to him about it. Like, this is awesome. So he, he kind of sucks for him, but I'm glad that he came on too. But yeah. uh, he, one of the questions he had, what do you think the landscape will look like as the NHL and other leagues move towards legalization? Well, I'd like to think that uh, sooner than later, it's right. not – uh, accepted or they're, they're not just not testing for it. It's not a bad substance anymore. It's actually promoted by, you know, the, the organizations themselves and, and uh, you know, passed down from the medical st uh, staff themselves. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, THC dry herb, uh, but, you know, there's, there, there's different types of delivery methods and di different types of cannabis-based products um, for example, I have a hemp-derived CBD company called Body Check Wellness, and it's yep, all yep. under the industrial hemp laws, grown below 0.3% THC. So we have capsules, topicals, tinctures, 
and there's no high associated with these products. They're just, you know, high anti-inflammatory. They help with anxiety. They help with sleep. They're neuroprotectants. Um, so they're kind of on the other side of the fence from what you'd call, you know, adult use cannabis or medicinal cannabis, uh, which are higher in THC. So I'd like to think that all these leagues will eventually, you know, um, be educated enough to supply their players with these products again, like post like a no brainer, like a no brainer. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, after practice, after game, post game, I mean, immediately getting these anti-inflammatory agents in their bodies so they can help calm the nervous system and promote a good night's rest. So they can wake up in the morning, feel fresher. Uh, I like to think that at some point here in the next year, I know some teams are already doing it. Yeah. The NFL actually just, um, released a statement. They're not, they're no longer going to suspend players, for cannabis right so they're no longer yeah. testing for thc so you know that that's that's a start um but it, it is also a very medicinal plant so it, it shouldn't just not test for it it actually should be used within the confines of the medical establishment or the medical staff right. itself so again you know all these sports induce inflammation contact sports induce more inflammation um, contact sports have a higher risk of concussions, obviously. So the fact that it's an anti-inflammatory and a neuroprotectant, I mean, we should be looking at this as a as a solution for concussions, you know, a solution if, for anxiety. Even if, even if it's not a solution, it's it's something extra that would definitely help no matter what. Like, it seems like we have something here that will cause absolutely no harm. Like, why aren't they just doing it? Because it's taboo still. There's a stigma around it. Uh, it's been federally illegal for... Um, you know, 90 years, uh, and just in the 2018, this federal farm bill got signed into law, which allowed hemp derived CBD to be, you know, sold legally across the, the nation. But, uh, you know, on the medical cannabis side of things and the adult use, uh, you know, adult use cannabis side of things, it's still federally illegal state by state. So, uh, uh most of these teams, as they, I say, all these teams on the medical side of things are really staying away from it because, it's still federally illegal. So, you know, their, their, their science is, is essentially swallowed up in the politics of the right. game, right? It's not about what's good for the players. It's just like, okay, well, science says it's still a Schedule One drug, meaning it has no medical value and it's highly addictive. Well, that's what the government tells you. doesn't mean that it's true, right? right. I mean, so the people that know understand that it's a valuable medicine. Right. But if you're listening to the other side, you know, the other side of the, the choir, the, you know, they're going to still stand behind their, their bullshit pseudoscience so that, uh, you know, the pharma can patent THC and synthesize it and come up with bullshit drugs like Marinol. So there's a lot of politics in medicine, unfortunately. And, um, you know, these, you know, these medical doctors that are associated with teams and the medical staff just run parallel to the protocols that are, you know, running through the medical establishment. You know, they just they're just playing it safe. There's liability involved. They don't want to have a player get arrested with cannabis, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, the, their ass is on the line. So hemp derived CBD seems to be fair game. Uh, I think players are still on the hook to buy their own. It's not supplied by the team. At some point, it will be supplied by the team. Um, you got you got Canada full legalization. You got a major cannabis company like Canopy Growth that uh, injected $20 million into the NHL Alumni Association to study CBD in the brain. It's going in the right direction. Unfortunately, right. guys are still suffering. Um, lives are lost because the science, well, the, 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 the science that's able to be proved legitimately um, in legal markets is just too slow for these, for these teams or these organizations to adopt this as a tool um, like a, a legitimate, you know, tool for, for their players. So it's, it's, it's moving fast, but it's also moving really slow. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's just a little bit, uh, frustrating, honestly, because I've known this for a long time that it's medicine and to see how slow they are with it and to see, you know, there is progress. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, again, I've been, you know, I, I, back in the day dealt with substance abuse and I know how many guys deal with substance abuse and it, it, it can be avoided. And I know that, you know, cannabis is also an exit drug. It helps people get off highly addictive substances like alcohol and opioids. You talk to Darren McCarty, man, he's got an amazing story. Where he, cannabis, came on, 
his he life. came on our podcast earlier this year. Okay, yeah, so you know, amazing, amazing story. And I know him. He's part, you know, part of our group with Athletes for Care. And um, great guy. Great guy, you know, and I think that guys like that are going to help, you know, shape the future of this because we don't need to, you know, we don't need to hit rock bottom. We don't need to go to through hell and back to, to find yourself. You know what I mean? I think with, with the right tools, we should avoid a lot of the substance abuse, right? I mean, we should, we should avoid a lot of this, uh, this, this toxic, destructive, you know, behavior that's, you know, passed down through the, through the medical establishment and system. So, Things are changing. Uh, we're working on it. You know, we're going to constantly do the right thing and promote the positivity of the plant and and share the good stories. There's millions of them out there. You know, I know they're all anecdotal stories, but uh, the science is kind of validating these stories slowly. Awesome. And and you said that you have your own thing. Where can our listeners go on to buy some of this stuff? Yeah. So it's bodycheckwellness.com, and check is spelled C H E K. So bodycheck. C-H-E-K, wellness.com, and um, all organically grown, hemp-derived CBD products, uh, tinctures, capsules, topicals. It's a clean uh, website, dude. What's that? This is, a, this is a clean website. I work in, like, a marketing. This uh, is a good website. Yeah, thanks. And we uh, we have a unique product, too, uh, where it's a full-spectrum hemp um, in, a, in a capsule mixed with six different mushrooms. So I don't know if you know much about the mushroom kingdom, but uh, really good for brain health and immunity and, and endurance. So I'm um, just trying to get progressive with that. I'm big into the mushrooms too, both uh, you know medicinal, therapeutic, and, and psychedelic mushrooms. So I know there's a lot of healing powers with the with the brain and the mental health and the, you know, the concussions and the PTSD. So kind of like uh, I'm doing with the cannabis, I'm doing with the psychedelics as well, specifically mushrooms. Uh, it's a ne- you know it's the next big thing, honestly. Okay, that's good to know. So check that out, guys. I'm probably going to have to end up getting a few things <laughs> as I'm looking at this stuff. Um, you have a podcast. Just started one. Yeah, actually, episode two is, is being released tomorrow. Yeah, so number one was with Todd Fedork, actually. And um, it's 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 not so much about sport. Um, there's sports talk in it. It's more about, you know, the afterlife and, and, and how guys are coping and the tools they're using to cope and, you know, personal growth and spiritual development and, Talk a lot about cannabis. Talk about you know yoga, meditation. Just again the fundamental tools of of health and wellness. So it's a little bit all over the place. Tomorrow's uh, is going to be with a medical doctor out of Canada, who's a you know a cannabis uh, cannabis based doctor in Canada. That's a you know is a former athlete uh, and also you know big in, in in the psychedelic space as well. But just again just providing solutions for guys and not just for guys, it's for the general public. This is not just, uh, you know, for, for athletes, but yeah, just in that alternative medicine, uh, sharing stories, but also sharing solutions. Awesome. And we can find that on iTunes, Spotify, everything like that. It will be on that eventually right now. It's just on, uh, coteculture.com and then, uh, believe, and then there's, uh, another Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia nation, uh, platform as well. So eventually we're going to just remove the video and, and get it up on Spotify and it'll be on YouTube as well. But, uh, Cote culture for sure dot com okay awesome man well hey man i really appreciate you hopping on i had a great time right this was a good time uh i mean just a wild story you grinded your ass off dude you did what you had to do you got it done then you did a little bit of soul searching and then you, you started your own thing i'm, I'm glad that you found a, a good path and uh i mean i respect the fuck out of what you guys do especially like the older school type players the new school i mean it's fun because they're super talented but like you guys seen some shit and I don't think the new players uh, have. And I, I appreciate that. And I know a lot of our listeners do too. So thanks for hopping on, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. You take it easy, buddy. All right, you too. See you later.